is the Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. G'day, Fiona Broom with you on the Country Hour today. Well, the weather's heating up, the UV index is shooting up along with the mercury. Are you protecting yourself from the sun? Last week, two melanoma researchers were named Australians of the Year for their groundbreaking research on skin cancers. But ahead on the show, you'll hear why farmers and agriculture workers still need to be careful when they're out in the sun. Have you been screened for melanoma? Is it something perhaps you've been meaning to do and haven't gotten around to? Maybe you've had some spots removed. Let me know on the text line 0467 842 You're listening to the Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. Also ahead on the show, you'll hear from growers who say they won't sell to the supermarkets anymore. But first, melanoma and skin cancers will be in the spotlight this year after Professors Georgina Long and Richard Scolia were named Australians of the Year for their melanoma treatment breakthroughs. The professors are co-directors of the Melanoma Institute of Australia. They've been credited with saving thousands of lives since they developed an immunotherapy approach to treating melanoma. Here's some of what they had to say as they were named Australians of the Year. We stand here tonight proudly representing every melanoma patient and their families, but also those with brain cancer and indeed all cancers. Our thoughts are always with those families where our breakthrough treatments came too late. We are forever indebted to your loved ones and all our patients for their selfless commitment to research, which has changed the futures for others. That is Aussie mateship at its very best. Sadly, everyone knows someone with melanoma. It's as Aussie as our golden beaches and our sweeping plains. We're the melanoma gold medalists, but this is not a gold medal to be proud of. In most cases, melanoma is preventable with sun-safe behaviour and prevention is always better than a cure. A tan is skin cells in trauma from overexposure to UV radiation from the sun. There is nothing healthy about a tan. Nothing. Our bronzed Aussie culture is actually killing us. We must elevate sun safety to equal status with other life-saving safety measures like wearing a seatbelt or a helmet. We can love this sunburnt country without the sunburn. Our mission is zero deaths from melanoma. To reach it, in addition to prevention, we need a targeted screening program and greater investment in research. This must be a national health priority. Professor Georgina Long and Professor Richard Scolia there after they were named Joint Australians of the Year for their work on melanoma research. And sun safety is something really everyone needs to be on the lookout for, but especially folks like farmers who work outside and who've got a greater risk of sun exposure. I asked Professor Sue Brumby, a researcher at the National Centre for Farmer Health, how big of an issue melanoma is for agricultural communities. 
Ah, oh, very much so. Uh, Fiona, it's wonderful to see um, Richard Scalia and Georgina Long recognised for this work and also to be able to promote it so much over particularly the next 12 months. Uh, we see a lot of farmers um, in our interactions with them and we get quite a few uh, kind of questions and people wanting to ask us things about spots. And what are those spots? What can they turn out to be? Is it always a melanoma or can they be a variety no, of things? No, we, we often um, find farmers uh, with basal cell carcinomas and squamous cell carcinomas oh, and often you know, around on their ears and hands and uh, face and the creases of their noses. Um, and they are usually a bit aware of them, but, you know, they just sort of start out as a scratchy, itchy spot. Uh, and then um, ideally we can get them in to be properly assessed for those. So we have been talking about sun safety for, I guess, the past few decades. How much is that message getting through to agricultural communities? Great question, Fiona. Um, we did some work um, a few years ago now on, I guess, you know, the great 1980s for those that were around then of the slip slop slap and looked at the original advertising, which actually included a farmer on a tractor as part of the Sid the Seagull kind of promotion and the original slip slop slap campaign of the 1980s. Um, that kind of changed and became more holiday focused. And I think um, even if you look today at the slip, slop, slap, seek, slide, it is more focused on beach and being outside and having fun as opposed to workers um, and people whose vocations put them out in the outside extremities and of the um, UV environment. So I think the message... Uh, went through in terms of probably long sleeves, um, but we still find many farmers wearing the cap hat uh, as opposed to a bucket hat or a broad brim hat. Um, we also find um, that farming people don't, they actually tend to use sunscreen when they're on holidays at the beach but not so much in everyday work, partly because it gets um, sticky and greasy and attracts dust. Um, so I think there's still a bit more to do in terms of getting them to really, if they're not going to wear sunscreen, to actually make sure they're wearing clothing that is UV, UV protective. Is there a demographic within the agricultural sector that is um, at higher risk or who you see coming in with more melanomas and skin cancers? Um, that's a good question. The livestock industries um, tend to be the ones that we would see the most. I, that's really as an anecdotal hunch there. I'd need to re-crack the data looking at that. The um, cropping uh, farmers do tend to be now working in um, you know, cabins, which is different to years ago, um, where a lot of the tractors uh, equipment didn't have cabins on. So they get a lot more protection now. Um, whereas people that are maybe out on motorbikes or horses or working out in sheep yards that are uncovered uh, certainly get a lot more exposure would be our experience, certainly the livestock farmers. And what about um, age groups or genders? Both, really, in terms of we certainly see everybody um, with 
uh, skin spots and skin cancers that they're concerned about. The older generation, uh, you know, people sort of over 50 often have the scalia hands and we're seeing more spots coming out on their ears and face and rest of their body. But that is primarily also, I think, due to age. They may have been severely burnt um, earlier in their life, which leaves you a bit more predisposed to getting skin cancers later in life. What about migrant workers or itinerant workers or people who might have been here um, on short-term visas? Do you think that the SunSafe messages reach through to those groups? Yeah, good question. Um, I'm not sure. We have certainly seen some very sunburnt um migrant workers that when we've done um, our field days, we often go to field days and do health and lifestyle assessments with our farmers and occasionally we'll get um, migrant workers come in who tend to be very young but may be very, have got sunburnt and not realised the power of the UV over here in comparison to where they've come from. And we've also done some work with um, Indonesian farmers in Indonesia and their um, uh, use of sun cream is pretty much non-existent and are more likely, though, to wear clothing that covers their body. Um, So some of those cultural things are definitely noticeable. The other thing that we which I did want to mention is some of the opportunities at events for field days and things for farmers, farm men, women to go and actually have their skin assessed. And the lions often have a skin cancer, skin check bus. Um, and certainly we've done some work before with the Southern Skin Cancer Clinic that have actually been able to treat on site if um, farmers have come in. And when you see people coming into those sort of pop-up screening centres, what kind of uh, reaction are you getting from people? Is it something that is kind of top of mind for them? Are they they really thinking about going and getting their checks or is it something that they perhaps aren't thinking about day to day? Yeah, good question. I think they go past and it props their mind or we also offer, you know, sort of blood pressure and lipid assessment and a full kind of assessment um, of which skin is just a small part of that. So the curiosity is they may be worried about their blood pressure or they may have had a family member that's just been diagnosed with diabetes or had a heart attack or something. So they're curious or indeed just had someone... um, diagnosed with a skin cancer so it's a variety of um a variety of things that make them want to actually come and engage but farmers and farmer health they're often busy so they really appreciate the opportunity when they're off the farm just to go and get some other advice Professor Long and Professor Scolia had a clear message last week. They say that there needs to be a targeted screening program and better community outreach as well as more research in the fields of melanoma and skin cancers. What's your key message uh, to farming communities and to agricultural workers? Certainly to get your skin checked at least annually. Um, if you've had a skin cancer, uh, you should be getting checked more regularly and also making sure you or your partner or a family member is also checking those hard to reach spots that you can't see yourself. Uh, and if you have any change in a spot or gets itchy or just a 
something happens, make sure you go and get that checked. And uh, obviously, early detection really matters. Um, I think uh, Professor Scolia and Professor Long's comments about treating skin cancer and UV exposure a bit like um, t- uh, tobacco and warnings and all those things um, is an important thing. We certainly have a lot of skin cancers um, in Australia and we know that we can do a lot ourselves to prevent them. And what's the best way to get something checked if you do have concerns? Should you pop into your GP or call one of the uh, telehealth services? I haven't used a telehealth service for skin check, but they do have great, you know, dermoscopes and you can send images around and um, have them checked out. Um, so I would probably go back to the traditional model but of seeing a GP or certainly if you're at any of these field day events that are available in rural Victoria with at agricultural shows and things to actually take the opportunity to use that. They're people that see a lot of these things. They're used to working with farm men and women and farming communities and can get you uh, checked out quickly. Professor Sue Brumby there from the National Centre for Pharma Health, reminding everybody to get their skin cancer and melanoma checks. You can share your thoughts on that. Have you had your checks recently? If not, what's holding you back? The text line 0467 842 And we have had a message come in. There's no name on this one. It says, hi, Fiona. I had a melanoma on the bottom of my left heel. It was removed 11 years ago. It was, and I'll try to pronounce this, an acral lentiginous melanoma, ALM. These are not caused by sun or UV exposure and are more common to dark-skinned people. I'm a fair-skinned redhead. Doctors believe it was caused by radiation from seven years in the Navy working on the radar. This person says, I fell into the trap of not thinking it could be a melanoma because of where it was, which never saw the sun. Thanks very much for sharing your experience there. 0467 842 is the text line. On ABC Radio Victoria, this is the Victorian Country Hour. Rural news and weather still to come on the Country Hour. We heard last week the competition watchdog, the ACCC, will hold yet another inquiry into the supermarkets. And a northeast Victorian zucchini grower from near Talamba says supermarket price gouging is as bad as it's ever been. Ross Marcelino grows tomatoes, eggplant and zucchini, but he says he's stopped supplying the major retailers. He says it's been a rough few years. Uh, very tough. You know, tough in, uh, in all aspects, uh, in growing and marketing the product, basically marketing the product because, uh, you know, we're getting... 240 a kilo at the moment, which is $24 a carton, um, which is you know, 40 cents a kilo above what it costs us to grow, which is a lot better than three weeks ago when we were getting $1.80, dollars a kilo, as high as two twenty a kilo. So it has been tough, a tough season, yeah. What was behind that change in price? Was Did the supermarket, did they increase uh, their prices? Uh, no, they haven't changed. They're... Uh, yeah, they're paying two forty a kilo, but they're retailing at nearly seven dollars a kilo. So nothing's changed. Uh, they're still uh, they're still still retailing too high. You know, we should be selling a lot more product um, at that two forty a kilo. The orders are very slow. The simple reason is um, they're retailing too high. So that's not helping us zucchini farmers. No, not at all. 
And so, Russ, you've said that you're you're prepared to walk away from supermarkets. So where are you with that? Well, I am. I'm only, I'm supplying into the market system, into the markets, and they're signing on to the supermarkets. Yes, yeah, so I'm not. I'm not supplying. I'm definitely not supplying them direct. No. And how long have you not been supplying them? Yeah, just this year. Yeah. So the price difference is is one factor. Were there other reasons behind your decision not to supply directly? Um, yeah, a lot lot of reasons. This is. This has been built up for the last two or three years. Um, they've become a lot, lot tougher to deal with. I suppose since COVID, two or three years ago, um, they've just become a little bit more hungry. This year, especially, even even last year wasn't as bad as what it is this year. I don't know what I don't know what's happened. As a farmer, what what are your other options? Is it really only going to farmers markets directly? No, I don't think so. Other options are that if the government had some sort of pull, um, let the fruiters, let the butcher shop owners, let the, the, the bakeries, let them sell the fresh produce. Maybe the supermarkets should be brought back in, into order um, and just sell groceries. So I suppose we'd, we'd probably still sell more amount of the stock and probably on a fair, fair price. I've, I've had a fruit shop for 30 years and I've been a, a market wholesaler for 16 years and a farmer all the way through. This is not how it should be. So, look, I've I've spoken up because this year of all many years, it's become very, very tough. Our expenses haven't got lighter. Our freight bills are higher. Our chemicals are higher. So we're at, we're at the limit now, yeah, with, with the costs. But yet we're, we're getting the same amount for our product that we were 10 years ago. To Lambert vegetable grower Ross Marcelino speaking there with Faith Tabaluyan. And one Queensland pineapple grower says he turned his back on the supermarkets decades ago. John Zelenka grows pineapples at Alligator Creek in Kumala, just outside of Mackay. We used to supply Coles and Woolworths locally, and then they changed their system to where their produce must go through a central marketing point. And how was the prices for you back then? Um, They were okay then, but um, when we started supplying a central marketing, they basically were giving you a contract and setting a price that probably didn't reflect the premium quality of your fruit. And when did you stop supplying to Woolies and Coles? Uh, it would be about 20, 23 years ago. I supplied all the uh, local shops and uh, wholesalers around here and also I send to Brisbane to the markets and I supply the IGAs. And how is it just supplying to markets and the IGA? Do you find that you get better pricing and um, you're better placed for your business than rather than at Woolies and Coles? certainly are and not only that um, the people get a much better product because the fruit is fresh and it hasn't traveled for thousands of kilometers and do you know a lot of other people in your industry or around here that are doing the same thing or have done the same thing there are the growers there are large growers who have contracts with Woolworths and Coles but um, we choose not to do that Coles and Woolworths especially Woolworths they love to advertise that they're the fresh fruit people. Well, their fruit has gone thousands of kilometres more than people who are supplying like 
IGA because they insist on it being sent to a central marketing point and then they send it back up on another truck back to where it probably came from to put in their supermarket. So, you know, they like to push this, um, their green and clean and green. Well, the green miles on their produce is far greater than it is on um, people like the IGAs. As you said, you, you got out a couple of decades ago. Do you feel like you ended your contracts at the right time? Yeah, I definitely. I, I just find that they love to take... <coughs> Woolworths love to pick the optimum size. They have a lot of specifics about what they want and then they intend to try to pin you down to a price that probably doesn't reflect that price you get in the market. They definitely control the market. You know, we really do need to support private stores and the IGAs because they support local growers. That's Kumala pineapple grower John Zelenka speaking there with Abby Holter. Uh, And in response, a Woolworths spokesperson said they pay farmers the market price for their produce, which can vary throughout the year due to weather, seasonality, supply and demand. A few messages coming in on the text line talking about melanoma uh, and getting checked are particularly important amongst agricultural workers who have a higher risk of sun exposure, spend a lot more time outside in the sun. This message from Chris says, Fiona, a wide-brimmed hat on the farm is a definite must-wear. Those peak caps are useless for protection. Thanks for that message, Chris. Got to say, I agree, as does my mum. My mum definitely tells us off if we throw on a cap. She says it doesn't protect our ears. Uh, Another message here from Bruce. I live in Shepparton, and without a referral, the wait time to get an appointment at the skin clinic is 12 months. That's Bruce in TAT. I guess that's Tachira. Thanks for your message there, Bruce. Um, And a message here from Judy. My melanoma was just a tiny scab that kept coming back. I was astounded by the diagnosis. Thanks for your message there, Judy. And just reiterating the, the, the necessity there of going and getting checked. It's 27 minutes past six here on the Country Hour. New from ABC Books. We've already fallen in love with Muster Dogs. No one would have predicted that a show about a bundle of puppies could take the nation by storm. Now the series narrator, Lisa Miller, takes you behind the scenes in the new book, Muster Dogs from Pups to Pros. Like so many of the shoots, not everything went to plan. I mean, they were working with animals, right? Muster Dogs from Pups to Pros by Lisa Miller. Book and audiobook available in bookstores and online. I said 27 minutes past six there, didn't I? That's a reflex. I'm usually on the Rural Report, which is at 6.15 in the morning. 27 minutes past 12. There we go. Uh, Let's head now to Rural News. We've got Emma Field with Rural News today. G'day, Emma. G'day, Fiona. Let's start Rural News in western and northwest Queensland, where ex-tropical cyclone Kiralee is still delivering rain after she crossed the coast on Friday. At Rolleston, south of Emerald, Trina Patterson welcomed the rain. It was beautiful thunderstorm rain. It rolled through. Um, no, it's it's really, really good. How much of a sense of, of relief comes with rain like this? Oh, heaps, heaps. Back in um, 2018, 2019, you know, we, that was our driest time here um, in the time that we've been here on Bottletree Downs and... You know, I, I don't want to go back to that time again. Um, 
so it's just always great to have that security of, you know, full soil profile, um, full dams, happy cattle, um, beautiful grass as far as the eye can see, to ease that worry over, um, over water. Yeah, it's just fantastic. About a 1,000 kilometres inland at Middleton, west of Winton, Anita Salmon had some brand new water views after copping just over 350 millimetres at her property. We've had 100 mil since Christmas, so we had a green pick and now we just have a beach frontage at the moment. A bit of water around. A bit of water around, yeah. Our channels behind the house um, have all joined up. So, well, yeah, it could be nearly 2K wide at the moment. So you're looking out the kitchen window and you can just see a sea of water at the moment, beachfront in, yep. in Western Queensland. Yeah, yeah. Who would have thought a cyclone would get this far inland? It depends on what the Diamantina does, but it could be four to six weeks before we can get to town. But Louise Martin at Tambo in the state central west had only received six millimetres when she spoke to the ABC yesterday. She hopes there's a bit more to come but is a little worried given her property was drought declared for a decade until just last year. Well, there's lots of pockets in Queensland who have completely missed out. and I'm not, I'm not the only one, but uh, it, it is tough. There's still that sort of trepidatious feel of, oh, it's raining, seems to be raining everywhere but not here. Is it ever going to rain again? And uh, unconsciously I think anxiety levels um, build up a bit, uh, especially when the rain has been falling not too far from here. To New South Wales now, where a trial is underway to try and develop stronger ties between the New South Wales Rural Fire Services and farmers when fighting fires. Landholders are being encouraged to take part in an initiative, which runs until the end of March, and allows them to use unregistered vehicles if they're being used to tackle a bushfire. They can travel up to 100 kilometres from home using public roads. RFS Commissioner Rob Rogers says it's an opportunity to formally recognise the value of private landholders and share resources. Farmers are there. They already have machinery. Often they can hold a fire until a brigade gets there or indeed they can put the fire out. And so this is trying to acknowledge the work that farmers do but also make it easier for a farmer to be able to go you know, and help his neighbour. I think it's important to call out the fact that RFS probably you know, needed to put some effort in to try and make sure that we work closer with, with farmers. But there's been a really good positive working relationship in the last last few years with farmers and this I guess just solidifies something. And you've probably seen a silo converted into a farm swimming pool or painted with artwork but have you seen one that's been crafted into a two-storey hotel? Well that's what couple Ken Edwards and Ruth Ash Burner gorse have done. The couple run a farm stay near Pittsworth on Queensland's Darling Downs. They spoke to Brandon Long about the 18-month build which will also make the accommodation completely off-grid. After their first single-storey glamping silo became a hit, the owners of property Fig Tree decided to tackle their most ambitious project yet. I think it was so popular that really took off. Everybody loved it, so we thought we'd just step it up and make something a little bit, bit better with more facilities in it and creature comforts for people from the city, but still be able to come to the country and enjoy it. One of the most important parts of the build was using locally sourced materials. 
The old galvanised silo was sourced from Mill Merrin, the ironbark timber poles came from a miller at Cecil Plains, and the spiral staircase originated from Stanthorpe. We wanted it all to blend in because this is a country property, um, and the lovely thing about pretty much everything in this silo is it's all been sourced locally, uh, from the silo itself through to the big, big uh, posts that hold it all together. And that's somewhere to put on the next holiday wish list, Fiona. And that wraps up Rural News. Thanks, Emma. Definitely going to pop that on the road trip list. That's Emma Field there with Rural News today. A few more texts coming in talking about uh, melanoma and going for skin cancer checks. John says, hi, Country Hour. Just check on the rays penetrating through the glass, as in cabins, etc." Thanks for that message there, John. Uh, another message, no name, says, those bloody yank caps should be banned. I don't know why anyone would wear one. Talking about uh, caps that don't cover your ears. Uh, and another message from Johnny, the baggy green should be banned as they're useless as mm, on a bull uh, for sun protection. Thanks for that message there, Johnny. Uh, and another one coming in talking about supermarket pricing and the inquiry going on there. No name on this one either, says Fiona. Every time the big two supermarkets are questioned about prices, they wheel out the line about paying the market price. They play a big part in setting those prices, hypocrites. Thank you for your messages there. You can drop me a text anytime about any topic, 0467 Let's head over to the weather now. We are crossing to the Bureau of Meteorology with Senior Forecaster Joanna Hughes. G'day, Joanna. G'day, Fiona. How are you? Very well, thanks. How is the weather looking for the next couple of days? It is looking um, pretty settled, to be honest. It's uh, yeah, obviously a very sunny day out there today. A little bit of cloud about the uh, about the southwest, but otherwise it's uh, looking pretty much clear right across the state at the moment Um, and as we head into tomorrow uh, it is getting a bit cooler again in the south we've sort of um, it's mostly northerly winds today um, and as we head into tomorrow we've got some cooler southerly winds pushing into southern parts of the state so um, dropping those maximum temperatures for tomorrow for southern parts down to sort of um, the uh, to the sort of low um, low to mid 20s for for most places um, and then up uh, north of the range, it's remaining uh, warm to hot um, in those sort of uh, up to 30 and and, um, and getting into the sort of even close to 40 up in the, the far northwest there. Um, and that sort of pattern's continuing uh, for the next few days where it's sort of partly cloudy and a, a bit cool to mild in the south and then remaining warm to hot in the north. Uh, so we do have some elevated fire dangers over the next few days um, in northern parts of the state. And uh, for tomorrow, there's uh, the chance of some uh, some shower activity around the ranges in the afternoon, around the eastern ranges. Uh, but otherwise, it is looking pretty dry right throughout the forecast period. Slight chance of uh, of maybe a little bit of drizzle on the southern slopes of the ranges um, in that southerly flow. But otherwise, looking looking pretty quiet um, as we head into Thursday. That sort of Similar pattern, partly cloudy in the south, warm and sunny in the north. Uh, but we do have winds picking up around um, coastal areas sort of late Thursday and into Friday morning with a, a front that's sort of brushing over, over Tasmania. And so that does increase the chance of a little bit of shower activity around southwest Victoria um, and about the Bass Coast on Friday. Uh, and then things are warming up even a bit more as we head into Saturday and Sunday um, as those winds start to turn northerly again. So on Saturday, we're looking at sort of those similar temperatures, uh, sort of mid-30s up in the north and um, 
sort of close to 30 degrees for most places in the south, but a touch cooler near the coast. Um, and then Sunday is when it really starts to, to warm up and we do have a, a wind change coming through on that day as well. So uh, sort of keeping our eyes peeled on that day in terms of elev- elevated fire dangers as well, particularly in northwestern Victoria. Um, and as that change moves through, uh, there is a return to a slight bit of shower activity late Sunday and into, into Monday morning. Um, but between, between now and Sunday, it's, uh, it's looking pretty quiet all around. Let's take a look at some temperatures. You mentioned up to 30 degrees or even 40 degrees in some areas. Do we have Mm -hmm. any uh, specifics on locations for that? Yeah, so um, I can run through the the sort of maximum temperatures tomorrow for a few um, centres around the state. So for tomorrow, we're getting up to 38 degrees for Mildura, 36 for for Swan Hill, um, 34 apiece for Echuca, Shepparton, um, and 36 for Wangaratta or Ruadonga. 32 for Bendigo tomorrow and for Horsham, uh, 31 for Seymour and uh, sitting around 20 degrees up over the Alpine Peaks. Then in the southern parts of the state, we've got 25 degrees for Hamilton tomorrow, 22 for Warrnambool, 26 for Colac, uh, 27 for Ballarat. It's sitting in the sort of uh, mid-20s around the um, around metro area, um, 27 for Latrobe Valley and uh, 25 for the um, sort of main regional centres around uh, around Gippsland, so that's for Sale, Bansdale and Orbost, all sitting around that sort of 25 degrees for tomorrow. But, uh, yeah, that, uh, the warmest day in the outlook period is that, um, that Sunday that we we're talking about there with the wind change coming through as well. So at the moment it is, uh, you know, Six days out, but uh, forecasting 41 degrees for, for Mildura and 40 for, for Swan Hill um, and 40 degrees for, for Echuca and, and Shepparton as well, getting up to 37 for, for Bendigo and uh, 39 for Wangaratta and, and for Orberwodonga as well. So it's, uh, yeah, warming up uh, in particular in the northern parts of the state um, in, uh, uh, on that Sunday that's coming up. You mentioned fire danger as well. Do we have some areas with fire danger warnings or advice? Um, not at the moment. We don't have any warnings out currently. So we do have just the um, the high fire danger at the moment um, at the, the district kind of level. So that's for today in the um, Mallee and the Wimmera. And then tomorrow that's the Mallee, Wimmera and the Northern Country. And that's uh, the same on Wednesday. Um, on Thursday, the Northern Country sort of drops out and it's uh, just high for the, the Mallee and Wimmera. And it's, uh, I think, similar on, on Friday and then dropping down to moderate on Saturday. And at the moment, um, it's sort of preliminary forecast at the moment, so we'll, um, we'll be putting some more um, time into, into sort of ironing out the, the little bits and pieces between now and when we get to it. But at the moment, it's looking like we may have some, um, some areas of extreme fire danger on Sunday um, with those elevated temperatures and, uh, and the wind change coming through as well. So Sunday's the, the day in particular to keep our, our eyes peeled for. And you mentioned some chances of showers about the place. Uh, do you have any idea of amounts or who might actually catch a bit of that rain? It's really not very much at all in terms of in terms of amounts. Um, it's sort of uh, in in the south. It's mostly drizzly stuff that you, you know, sort of lucky to get a millimeter in in the gauge. Um, in terms of the um, the showers on Tuesday afternoon around the eastern ranges. Again, that's sort of uh, very light shower activity, less less than a millimetre. So in the in the outlook period, um, there's there's nowhere that's going to get more than um, more than a millimetre in, in the gauge at this stage based on the current forecasts. Uh, and any other warnings uh, that people should be aware of? Uh, no other warnings at the moment. There there will um, likely be some coastal wind warnings that go out um, in the Thursday sort of Friday period. Um, and uh, yeah, we'll keep our eyes peeled for 
any um, fire weather warnings that may um, end up being issued for, for Sunday. But at the moment, it's, uh, it's all quiet on the warnings front. A hot few days ahead. Thanks so much for your time, Joanna. No worries, Fiona. Have a good day. You too. Uh, Senior forecaster Joanna Hughes at the Bureau of Meteorology there. Uh, And it has been a bit of a a wet summer, despite the long-term El Nino forecast. Could a volcano which erupted near Tonga be partly responsible for the rain that just kept on falling? Angus Verley put some of these questions to Agriculture Victoria seasonal risk agronomist Dale Gray. The El Nino that we have has been has been pretty weak, um, and it's sort of it's breaking down probably at the moment as we expect in autumn. Uh, and then the positive IOD probably hung around a little bit longer up there in the Indian Ocean, but it's pretty much almost cactus as well. And historically, over summer, we would expect both of those phenomena to have pretty limited. Uh, influence over rainfall or at least very variable influence but the one climate driver that we have had that can in fact influence summer rain has been quite active Uh, and that's the southern annular mode um, that measure of the systems that are spinning around antarctica Uh, and it's spent a fair bit of summer in the positive phase which means that the winds around antarctica are spinning faster and they're pulling the systems further south so if people thinking their weather feels like northern New South Wales or Queensland, Angus, that's exactly the case. Those systems have been pulled further south. We've been experiencing more tropical and more humid-like weather and quite stormy uh, as well. Now, historically, when we have positive phases of the southern annular mode over summer, we would classically expect the eastern half of Victoria to be wetter, and that's certainly been the case, but it has actually drifted a bit further westward than that as well. So, You'd probably say, you know, two-thirds to three-quarters of Victoria have been much wetter. Okay, so that's that's what we attribute this wet summer to, that southern annular mode and the effects of it. Yeah, that's right. And it's, it's, its predictability is not that great out to, you know, a couple of weeks, although it was always going to be an interesting tussle this year. We Even though we had an El Nino going over summer, historically that would cause a negative southern annular mode. But we had the hangover from the Tongan volcano eruption from a couple of years ago, uh, which caused a positive southern annular mode last summer and moderated the weather to a fair bit. And there was always a chance that that could happen again this year. Once we get to autumn, that uh, relationship will break down potentially once again. uh, And we'll get to our good old autumn time, Angus, where we have all of those climate drivers kind of reverting back to neutral. I'll ask you about the outlook shortly, but just on that Tongan volcano, because I, I see a few references to it, can you just explain how it's possible that that event that was now two years ago is still influencing the climate now? What happened with that uh, volcano was that it put an inordinate large amount of moisture into the upper atmosphere, into the stratosphere, water vapour because it was an underwater volcano and it put a heap of steam essentially up into the atmosphere. That moisture got down to Antarctica and changed the way that the circumpolar vortex, the, you know, the winds that are spinning around Antarctica, uh, changed the way that worked. Um, and that has hung around, well, it was, it was there last year uh, and it's seasonally based. It's not something that's necessarily there acting all the time but it potentially has its greatest ability to move things uh, over summer by, you know, speeding up those winds around Antarctica uh, and causing, yes, that positive phase of things where basically you need to understand is that it pulls things further south.
I suppose the million dollar question would be, can it do it again next year? I don't think anyone knows that. Okay, so back to the outlook that you started to touch on before. What's going to drive the climate in the months ahead and what's your best uh, guess on, on what we'll see in terms of rainfall? Well, the, the climate models at this time of the year are really they're predicting that El Nino to break down in, um, in autumn and that's completely normal when we'd expect it to do that. We expect the Pacific Ocean to revert back to neutrality. Uh, and then we see some interesting divergence from the models. A, a lot of models are just sitting on the fence with the Pacific Ocean behaving itself normally. Uh, and we see three models um, that I look at, and particularly North American models, are predicting um, the Pacific Ocean to go into some sort of cooler phase. Um, and a number of those start to look a bit uh, La Nina-ish like, or in fact are in fact La Nina. So it's very early days for that prediction. There is so much water to go under the bridge, Angus, uh, literally, and so much random sort of weather that would need to occur for that to happen. You know, we need to be mindful that predictions by climate models made in autumn are notoriously unreliable, Angus, unfortunately. So does that then mean, Dale, as we approach sowing time and people start to think about their, their cropping programs, does that mean you, you should only base your decisions on, on the conditions before you, that subsoil moisture you've already got, as you mentioned, rather than trying to, to guess what the season will do and um, base your uh, rotations on that? I get very worried, Angus, when people are making um, management decisions at planting time on the basis of forecasts because for every time they can get it right, they can get it wrong. Um, so it's it's really a mixed bag. Um and, and you're exactly right. You're much better to be making decisions at that time of the year on the known knowns, of which soil moisture is one of them. It really is a case of going with what you know at that time of the year rather than going with the climate forecasts until those climate forecasts um, you know, are at a time of the year that they can be more reliable, which is, which is winter and spring. Dale Gray there, seasonal risk agronomist with Agriculture Victoria, speaking with Angus Verley. Uh, a few more texts coming in on the text line regarding supermarket pricing and the inquiries announced there. Uh, Mick in Bell Reynolds says, don't believe the supermarkets spin. They profit the most from fruit and veg sales. That's why they're always the first product as you walk in the door of any supermarket. The line that they pay market prices is because they set them. Thanks for that message, Mick. Uh, and on, another one here, no name on it, says regarding the supermarket inquiry, rolled oats are currently worth $7,000 a tonne on the supermarket shelf, yet the grower receives approx approximately 350 to $420 a tonne for the raw product. That's only 6% of the total cost. Someone's getting a big chunk of the pie even after production, packing and transport costs. It's time growers are fairly rewarded. Well, young people are the future of agricultural industries and dairies, no different. Over the past 20 years, the Cows Create Careers program has introduced Aussie secondary school students to the world of dairying. Faith Tabulian has the story. The El Nino that we have has been... Apologies there, having some issues with my computer program here. Let's have a crack again. We've got Faith Tabaluyan here. For a lot of Aussie teens, dairy means breakfast, not a potential career path. 
But the Cows Create Careers program aims to change that. For the past two decades, this program has helped show Aussie students all that the dairy industry has to offer. Cows Create Careers National Coordinator Deanne Kennedy was at International Dairy Week in Tatura to explain more. Cows Create Careers first of all is a national program. It runs to 240 schools across Australia in 23 dairying regions every year. Um, IDW, they approached us this year um, to come and bring some students to International Dairy Week and we thought school holidays, will that happen? But it did. Um, we had the support of these nine schools. So um, they're participating in three activities and the first is a moon transfer. Um, so they presented videos on why dairy is an essential part of your diet and it went wonderful. The um, students across South Australia, New South Wales and Victoria, they did a great job. They were pretty nervous because it was being live streamed, but um, they did a great job here today. Yeah. And so this is your 20th anniversary, but is that 20th, 20 years of being at IDW or 20 years of the program in general? Uh, inaugural year at IDW, but 20 years of the program nationally. So this program um, has been running across the country for 20 years. There's um, hundreds of thousands of students that have been through the program, this dairy industry program, since the inception. And we've had all these loyal farmers and advocates volunteering their time. So um, the reason this program survived 20 years is because of the volunteerism, um, and that comes from the service providers and our dairy farmers. Yes, that was something that stuck out to me because you mentioned that all of the students are here on their holidays, but also their teachers and their support staff are here on holidays. So, yeah, can you talk a bit more about the importance of volunteers in this program and the and how keen people in the dairy industry seem to be to support these kinds of events. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you've asked that question because it's number one for me. So I started this program in 2004 um, and back then we were in Gippsland and we launched it in Gippsland and invited a few farmers to participate. But, you know, I didn't quite realise how powerful the dairy industry is um, and the dairy network. And so when we wanted to expand, those farmers suggested other farmers and then we ring up and say, hey, guys, do you think, you know, you can um, be involved in a school and um, take a couple of little dairy calves there and talk about your career pathway and then we would ring up the service providers to our um, wonderful industry and do the same and I just cannot believe the volunteerism. Everybody says yes um, to Cows Crack Careers and they've been with us some of those people for 20 years as well so they've all aged. Um, I think our relationships with the teachers and the schools um, and the relationships that the farmers and advocates um, have with them um, gives the respect for the teachers to do this in the school holidays as well so they just love the dairy industry and they really enjoy the program and they want to support the farmers that have been supporting them and, and giving them the opportunity to learn so it's just number one Cows Crack Careers is here for 20 years because of the legacy of volunteers. This year, 25 schools from around the country applied to be part of the program, but only the cream of the dairy crop were invited to Tatura, where they got to meet farmers, industry advocates and plenty of cows. Among them were Gage Doiner and Leo Mondin, two Bandura Secondary College students passionate about all things dairy. I think we were the first uh, school in metropolitan Victoria or something like that to do it and we had a cow come to our farm program in school um, so I think we had that for a couple months looked after it while it was a calf um, and then recently we got invited to do the Cows Create Careers program. Can you t also tell me a bit about your background in agriculture because being from Bandura I guess you don't live on big farms like in other parts of Victoria so how did you kind of get involved in ag in the first place? Maybe I'll start with you Gage. Yeah. 
Um, so my dad, he works in landscape gardening and he works on a couple farms uh, and I would come to work with him sometimes and I'd work with the cows and so on and I really enjoy working with animals in general, like I, I do great with animals, I love animals. Um, after that I was like, I really like this kind of stuff um, and I applied to do TAFE at Melbourne Polytechnic for agriculture and I got in and I've also been working uh, at the school farm for about three years on and off as well and volunteering my time and then yeah I worked on a, um, at Edendale Farm for a little bit as well where I got more experience and I'm looking in the future to work on a farm or with animals somehow. Great and how about you Leo? Um, I don't have too much of an experience in agriculture but I really like animals so when I got opportunities to feed the animals at school in our small farm and when the calves came feeding, feeding those every morning that was grabbed my attention and made me want to do more and I'm enjoying learning more about it and getting more experience as time goes on. Great and before you were telling me how you know you would at least before this event have described yourselves as city kids so for any city kids who might be even a little bit interested in ag what would you say to them maybe we can start with you Leo um, even though it's really easy to get nervous especially when there's so many people who have grown up in the industry you sort of just need to push yourself to do it and try your best Bandura Secondary College student Leo Monden speaking there with Faith Tabaluyan. Time now to head to the markets. We've got four markets today. Let's start with Pakenham Cattle and Brendan Fletcher. G'day, Brendan. Numbers increased to 1,300. That's 210 more with all of the regular buyers operating. In a dearer market, quality was good with prime cattle well supplied and a small proportion of cows. Trade cattle lifted 20 to 40 cents. Ground steers and bullocks sold 10 dearer. Manufacturing steers sold firm and cows sold from firm to 10 dearer with processors loading cows for an estimated 4.98 to 5.38 cents a kilogram carcass weight. Heavy bulls sold firm. Vealers sold from 310 to 380, yielding trade steers 310 to 348, the heifer portion 280 to 334. Ground steers 308 to 336, bullocks 296 to 320, heavy Friesian steers 255 to 284, crossbreds 260 to 308. Most light and medium weight cows 208 to 268, heavyweights 220 to 292, heavy bulls 218 to 274. This is Brendan Fletcher reporting for MLA. Thanks for that, Brendan. We'll go now to Wagga Cattle with Leanne Dax. G'day, Leanne. Good afternoon. Wagga reached new heights at the cattle sale today as feedlots and export buyers engaged in strong bidding, elevating competition across a wide range of categories. Once again, local processors found themselves relegated to the sidelines, unable to match the prices offered by keen lot feeder buyers. In a slightly bigger yarding of 4,600, the prices for feeder heifers and steers surged ahead 15 to 25 cents. The 330 to 400 kilo heifers commanded prices from 305 to 339, 
while medium weight feeder steers fetched 310 to 367. A standout feature of the sale was robust demand for heavy export cattle, with processors driving prices 20 to 30 cents higher. Demand from Queenslanders for superior bullocks was particularly strong, leading heavy bullocks to sell in a range of 295 to 346, while heavy heifers topped at 334. In the cow sale, Prices lifted six to seven cents. Heavy cows range from two seventy to two eighty three. I'm Leanne Ducks for MLA. Thanks for that, Leanne. We'll go now to Bendigo Lambs with Jenny Kelly. Good day, Jenny. Good afternoon. 13,450 lambs, up 1,200 head. The market ebbed and flowed again. It meant there were some dearer sales across the course of the auction, particularly for neat trade lambs. However, price averages ended up similar to last week. Heaviest export lambs, 200 to a top of $259 to average 235 at a ballpark cost of $725 cents a kilo. The heavy 26 to 30 kilo lambs, 184 to 232 And the neat trade lambs, 20 to 24 kilos, 157 to 186. These categories averaging around 7.30 to 7.40 cents a kilo, pushed up by some strong sales to domestic buys, which reached close to 800 cents at times. But underneath this, there was still a run of plain crossbred slaughter lambs with less polish and appeal, which processors could buy below the 700 cent mark. Decent lines of light lambs sold strongly and were often dearer at 100 to 130, going to MK bag lamb orders and restockers. In the sheep run, prices were up to $10 dear again, with good lines of mutton costing from 300 to 340 cents. Jenny Kelly for MLA. Good on you, Jenny. And we'll go finally now to Mortlake Cattle with Chris Agnew. Good day, Chris. Thanks, Fiona. Agents yarded 2,200 head at Mortlake this week, a similar number to last week's offering. Most of the cattle on offer displayed an improvement in quality overall. Most of the normal processes were active in a very strong market to be dearer by 10 to 15 cents for grown and trade cattle. Manufacturing steers gained 20 to 25 cents and the cows remained firm over most categories with perhaps the heavy end being slightly dearer. Bulls remained firm. This week the offering of vealers made between 274 and 330 cents, trade steers and heifers making between 270 and 330 and grown cattle topped at 331 cents this week. Manufacturing steers they sold up to 275 cents. Heavy beef cows sold from 230 to 270 with the medium weights between 200 and 230 cents. Dairy cows were generally between 195 and 239 cents, and the grown beef bulls to 254. At Mortlake, this is Chris Agner reporting for MLA. Thank you, Chris. That's Chris Agnew there with Mortlake Cattle Markets, and that's about it from me on the Country Hour today. I'm Fiona Broom. Thanks so much for your company. And thanks for your texts. We were talking about melanoma today and getting checked for skin cancers. And no doubt we will be talking about those issues for much of the year. Australians of the Year named last week. They are melanoma researchers. You can catch up on today's show or any of your favourite shows on the ABC Listen app. For rural news in the meantime, you can head to abc.net.au forward slash rural. Rural reports back with you tomorrow at 6.15. I'm Fiona Broom. Take care.